Uh, we have two readings tonight. Uh, our first reading is from Exodus chapter 33, starting from verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom will uh, send with who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that uh, you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me on the top of the mountain, No one else is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks or herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chisels out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the God the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. 
Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people will love, live among you. Uh, uh, the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and will eat their and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make cast idols. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this in the appointed time of the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to, be, to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall labor, labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest you must rest. Celebrate the feast of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast, and do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover feast remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, without eating or drinking, without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Our second reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God for one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is God's word. Father God, we ask that you would open our understanding this evening, that 
we might not just uh, get our heads around the words that you have spoken, but that in our hearts we might uh, understand and believe and trust in who you are revealed to be. Help us, Father, to leave here tonight knowing you, trusting you, loving you more because of who your word reveals you to be. Amen. How would you describe God? You've got three adjectives. What? Write it down. Go on, have a go. How would you describe God? Three adjectives, just three adjectives. What are they going to be? Loving, kind, forgiving, gracious, good, trustworthy, figment of imagination, angry, wrathful, vengeful. It's very important that you and I know what we think God is like. Who we understand God to be matters. It matters to our relationship with him. So in Luke 7, you meet the Pharisees and a woman who's lived an outrageously sinful life. And the Pharisees are hard, proud, judgmental because they think God is a God of divine justice. And that's it. The sinful woman, by contrast, is full of love because she believes God is a God who is forgiven and is a God of grace. Who you think God is has an enormous impact on you and on your relationship with him. It matters to, uh, to our faith when life gets hard and confusing as to whether we, we feel like this is a God I can trust or whether we just think, yeah, I thought you were like this, God, and grow bitter, angry, and turned away from him. It matters as to whether I want to tell people about this God because I think he is so good or whether actually I think there are things about God that are a bit embarrassing, a bit immoral, a bit sub, well, they're not as good as our culture understands goodness to be. And so we feel a little bit ashamed of and we don't feel confident to tell people about this God. How I think about God matters enormously. It matters to whether I want to believe in him, whether I think it's worth investigating the claims this God makes, whether I find myself drawn to him or just not interested in him. We need to be clear on who God is if we're to follow him confidently and if we're to speak to others with any degree of joy about who this God is that we know. So what does the Bible reveal him to be like? And that brings us to Exodus 33 and 34, and in particular to verses 6 and 7. We'll spend most of our time in there because in the whole Old Testament, there are no more important verses than these two verses in terms of what is God like. Uh, You'll see actually under the second point, just a number of the quotations, the direct quotations in the Old Testament where in crucial passages, the people of God turn back to Exodus 34, 6 to 7 and say, this is our God. But we rejoin the story after the disaster of Exodus 32. The stone tablets that Moses brought down the mountain, written on by the finger of God, lie shattered at the foot of the mountain, symbolic of what's happened to to God's covenant agreement with the people. They turned away from worshipping God and worshipped a golden calf 
and the covenant with God lies shattered. And they've brought God's angry and perfectly rightful judgment upon themselves. And the question hanging at the end of last week is, can there ever be a real relationship, a close relationship between a people as sinful as this and a God as holy as that? In chapters 25 to 31, you'll remember, um, they were promised this beautiful, ornate tabernacle, a tent, where God would symbolically dwell in the middle of the camp. And God's whole purpose for rescuing the Israelites, we saw back in 29 and verse 46. They will know I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And then we read chapter 33 verses 7 to 11. Now Moses used to make a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. One man in a shabby little tent somewhere away from the camp. The rest of the people stuck in the camp looking on and worshipping from afar. It is a horrible anticlimax. It is an England football World Cup campaign moment. You know, the huge build-up, the excitement, and it's always just pathetic. The reality is always shambolic and just miserable. And that's exactly what's happening here. It is, this is, after chapters 25 to 31, this is just pathetic. After all the promises of golden glory and God's presence and this, one man, one little tent, miles away. It's one of the the Bible's great, is that really it moments. You're meant to feel a colossal sense of disappointment. But God is not done. That is not it. And so the story continues. And we'll see um, in this next section, as God starts to set things right, the first thing we learn from 12 to 23 is that the, the giver is greater than all his gifts. And this is a vital context to what is about to happen, to lead us into verses 6 to 7. Uh, presumably this is one of the conversations that God had with Moses that's described in verses 7 to 11 and so we read in verse 12 Moses said to the Lord you've been telling me lead these people but you've not let me know whom you will send with me you've said I know you by name and you have found favor with me well if you're pleased with me teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you remember this nation is your people His question in verse 12 is really at the heart of this whole section. God had said during the golden calf episode, I do not think that I can go with you to the promised land because I will probably end up destroying you because you are wicked and I am holy. The God of fire cannot stay with a people who keep covering themselves in petrol has been God's big message in the last chapter. And so Moses asked, well, who will go with us? God, are you going to come with us or are you just going to send an angel? 
who's it going to be? And amazingly, after all that's happened, God answers in verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence, literally my face, will go with you and I will give you rest. It won't be an angel, Moses. It'll be me, God, who goes with you. And Moses' reply shows that Moses gets something about God that I think an awful lot of people miss. Moses realizes that the giver is greater than any, any of his gifts. Look at verses 15 to 16. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, then do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses, look at verse 11, has spent time with God face to face. Uh, we know from verse 20, this, this doesn't mean literally he saw God's face. He couldn't. But it means that you know, he engaged with him personally, intimately. And Moses now knows from, from what he saw of God, from what he experienced of God, that nothing compares with being known by God, knowing God, being in relationship with God. Uh, God had said at the start of uh, chapter 33, an angel of mine will go with you in 33, 1 to 6. He will destroy your enemies. He will answer all your prayers. He will give you anything you want in my name. Victory will be yours. The angel will see to it, but I won't go with you. And Moses says, look, God, if it's a choice between having any gift we could ask for from you and having you, we want you. Even though it's dangerous, even though you're holy and we're sinful, we want you, God. We don't care about your gifts. We want you. When it's a choice between all God's gifts and God, Moses wants God. We know that. Parents can't compensate for not being there with their children by buying them gifts. It's not what the children want. And children of God, nothing is so good as knowing our Father. Nothing. Most of us, actually, we turn to God because we need something from him or we want something from him. You know, we, uh, I'm going to be judged. I'm sinful and you offer salvation. I want that. We come to God because we want stuff from him. Healing, help, forgiveness, whatever it is. But when you spend time with this God, the truth is, you will find that nothing that he gives is anything like as good as he is, as being with him and known by him. We know that so faintly here. We get glimpses of it. But that is the truth that all of our lives are walking towards. God himself, his presence is better than all his gifts. And so God again says what he, that he will do. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses, however, won't take yes for an answer. Good old Moses. He wants assurance, and that's what's going on in the next verses. He's saying effectively, all right, God, prove that you, you said you'll be with us. Now prove it. Uh, don't stay at a safe distance from me. Come down now and reveal yourself to me. Come here. Let, let me feel your presence right here with me so I know that you can be with sinful people. Verse 18, Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. 
Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. There is a lot going on in these verses. And we will come back to them next week as we basically spend the whole week thinking about the glory of God in the final little few verses of Exodus. But for now, do you see that when Moses asks to experience to see God's glory, God answers by proclaiming verbally his name, verse 19. See, Moses wants reassurance that God, you, your glory, your your radiant glory can be with us and it not be dangerous. That it can actually be safe for, for us to be in your presence. And Moses, I think he's asking for some transcendent experience of God, some visceral, emotional connection with God, that some spiritual moment that means that Moses says, I have experienced God and he can be with us. But God is saying Moses will find assurance not in an irrational experience, but as you understand who I am. That's why Moses has God's name proclaimed to him. Now what happens next is not a purely logical thing. It's not as if God spoke a series of disembodied words straight into Moses' brain. There is something far, far more here. This is an overwhelming experience of God's presence with Moses. But at its heart is a rational understanding of who God is. See, knowing God is not something less than rational, as if you have to empty your conscious mind to connect with the divine. He meets us in his word, his proclamation. But it is more than rational. Reading the Bible is not like reading a Wikipedia page about somebody. You know, it's not even like reading a letter from somebody. Moses' experience, and for us reading the Bible today, is like sitting down across the table from somebody as they speak to us. We are in God's presence as he speaks his word to us. This is personal communication. This is personal experience, personal engagement with God that Moses has and that you and I have as we encounter his word today. And in it we see, secondly, that the character of God is the assurance we need. The character of God is the assurance we need. First five verses, uh, God is basically renewing the covenant. He's going back to what happened in chapters 19 to 25 and repeating them and saying, look, this still stands. Even after the golden calf, this still stands. Uh, 34.1, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words which were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Just like the first ones. But how? How can the covenant that we saw ruined 
with the golden calf that led to the death of so many Israelites, the plague, the the slaughter of judgment. How can that covenant still stand? Because we will see. And God comes down, verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses. Can you imagine what that must have been like? God uses this sort of human language of hand and back and face, but God is pure spirit. Moses wedged in this, in this cleft of rock in the mountain as the thunderous presence of the Lord descends. Can you imagine what, what it must have been like for Moses? And the truth is, imagine is all you can do because Moses does not tell us what he felt and nor does he tell us what he saw. Instead, he records what he heard. And these words are important. There are no other words in the whole Old Testament that are quoted more than these. No other words in the whole Old Testament. You see, way back decades before, when Moses had been a shepherd, on this very mountain, he'd seen a burning bush and he'd gone over to have a look and the bush had spoken to him out of the flames and it had been God. And Moses asked, who are you? And what did God reply? He said, I am who I am. And he stopped there. What does that mean? It's this enigmatic word Yahweh or Jehovah, uh, translated Lord in capitals in our Bibles, uh, which comes from the the Hebrew for I am. And God is basically saying, you will never imagine a God like me if you were left to imagine it. You'd come up with something stupid like a golden calf. I'm nothing like anything you'd imagine. I am, you will see. You will see. I am who I am. You'll know me by what I do by my deeds. And Moses and the Israelites then saw the plagues, the the power of Pharaoh smashed. They saw the Red Sea split open in front of them and they walked between two walls of water. They ate manna, miraculous food. They drank water from a rock in the middle of the desert. And they gathered at the foot of the mountain and saw the thunder of the Lord and heard his voice. And they experienced his judgment when they rebelled against him. And they experienced the forgiveness of a God who didn't wipe them out. So what is God like? Well, now they know enough for God to say some more. What is God like? And in particular, what is God like if you're a sinner, (laughs) like the Israelites? Verse 6. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, for most of us, there are two issues that immediately start flashing big lights in our heads and stop us actually enjoying the great things we learn about God. They come in verse 7. And it's, well, hang on. Well, he's in one minute, you know, he's all, you know, nice, cuddly, forgiving God, and then suddenly, and punishing sin. Well, uh, who gets punished and who gets forgiven? And secondly, the whole kind of punishing sins for the uh, children, for the sins of their parents. 
Let's quickly deal with those so that we can enjoy what's going on in these verses. Firstly, uh, who determines who gets punished for their wickedness and who gets forgiven? Two Old Testament passages um, quote this verse 6 to 7 and then explain. Um, both Joel 2, 12 to 13, which is on your sheets, and Jonah 3, again on your sheets. And the same answer is given both times. In Jonah 3, on page 928, uh, Jonah has just proclaimed Exodus 34, 7, basically, to the Assyrian city, city of Nineveh. You're wicked, and God is going to destroy you in 40 days' time. It's not the most kind of winning appeal that Jonah makes. But, but, we read... In Jonah 4, uh, Jonah 3 verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee in Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Isn't it interesting? bits of the Bible that we struggle with, he doesn't struggle with. The bits that he struggles with, we find easy. So often the way with the Bible. Our little culture has issues with one set of verses. Other cultures feel differently. But you see the answer. What determines who gets punished, who gets forgiven? Those who repent. Those who humbly admit their wrong and turn back to God and ask for forgiveness, find him a God of compassion. Those who proudly carry on, assuming we know what's right, find God a God of justice and punishment. Well, secondly, the, the whole issue about um, punishing children for the sins of their fathers. Now, I think we are just too individualistic probably to see this, but the truth is that parents really do shape their children. I see this most Sundays. Most Sundays there'll be... Um, uh, an older couple come to CCM, and I do not need to ask whose children they are the parent of. They may be considerably older, they may have a few more wrinkles and be slightly grayer, but it is so obvious. The way they walk, the way they shake hands, the way they laugh, everything about them chips off the old block. You are your parents. Just give it a few decades. It is, it's one of the, it's just, I love it. It's wonderful. But it's true morally as well. Uh, the sad fact is that although I'm responsible for my behavior, don't underestimate the extent to which we are shaped by our upbringing. And so parents who, who effectively teach their children that getting ahead materially is what most matters, getting material security and being wealthy is what matters in this world. They, by and large, raise children who grow up with the same greed and materialism and God makes explicitly clear in Deuteronomy 24 16 and Ezekiel uh, 18 19 to 20 he does not punish us for the things our parents do or vice versa we read in Ezekiel 18 the soul who sins is the one who will die Ezekiel 18 20 the son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. And the verse before, since the son has not done what is just and right, he will not surely live. In other words, where the children turn away from the sins of their parents, they will not be punished. Where the children turn away from the righteousness of their parents, they will be punished. 
The point of Exodus 34.7 is not God punishes innocent grandchildren for stuff that was done before they were even born. His point is, you know, sin is horrific. Don't play with it. Sin infects generations. It always spreads. It always affects those who we're in relationship with, not just ourselves. And God takes sin seriously and will root it out and follow it down the generations. Okay, those two things out of the way. What do we learn about the character of God in these verses? Let's turn back to Exodus 32, uh, 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I am who I am. And that means I am the gracious and compassionate God. Compassion means more than that God does good stuff for us. It means that God's motivation for doing good things for us is that he feels warmth, love, compassion. He feels for us. God is not doing a job. There is nothing professional about salvation. God saves us because he feels compassion for sinners like you and me. He's also, I am gracious. Uh, Grace means, uh, it's this word for getting stuff you don't deserve. In other words, the stuff God gives us is not like earning your salary at work. It's like Christmas. We do not earn good things from God. It's not like receiving your paycheck that you've done the work for. Nor is it uh, as if salvation is something like a mortgage that you get to enjoy the benefits now, but you've got to pay it off for the rest of your life. God's not like that. God's a Christmas sort of God. He gives us richly, generously, because he's like that. It's a present, not a work that's paid back. I am slow to anger. He does not fly off the handle. You don't have to walk around on eggshells with this God. He's not like some mad alcoholic and you're just terrified about the next explosion of anger in the household. He is immensely, immensely patient. Now I find uh, sometimes I talk to people who uh, say the Old Testament is full of God, anger, judgment, killing. You know, you can look up on the internet... uh, the, the, the body count of God in the Old Testament. They say there are hundreds of verses of God being angry and zapping people. But the thing that they miss when they cherry pick out these verses of judgment is the years, decades, generations that go between those verses where God is patiently born with the wickedness of people for year after year after year. In Genesis 15, 16, we read that even when it comes to the baby-sacrificing Amorites, God says, no, their sin has not yet reached the stage where I'm going to wipe them out. It'll be another 400 years. 400 years putting up with baby sacrifices. That's how patient God is. He is a God of immense patience. Don't cherry-pick the Old Testament. Read the whole story. I am abounding in love and faithfulness. And this word for love is one of the most important words in the whole Old Testament, chesed. It means covenant love, faithful love, or uh, if you like, love that doesn't wear out. It's, um, it's something that we struggle to get our heads around because almost every relationship where we love somebody, we get something in return. 
And if we don't, the relationship doesn't last very long. But God's not like that. The word for faithfulness is faithful in the sense of true. In other words, God is saying, I am a God of faithful covenant love and I am true to my word. I'm not going to change that. He's not fickle. God's affection for you, God's love for you is not some teenage crush that, you know, this week God just really loves you and, do it, and next week he's moved on. God's not like a teenager. He is faithful for thousands of generations. And I love the fact it's not enough for him to say, um, I am a God of love and faithfulness. That's not enough. He says, I abound in it. <laughs> in other words, uh, God's love for us is not like a cup of crystal clear, fresh, cold spring water that satisfies our souls. It is a waterfall cascading down upon us. It is an ocean for us to dive into. We will never exhaust God's love for us. It carries on for eternity. It overwhelms us. It drenches us. And he maintains love to thousands. I think he... I'm pretty sure here he's picking up on the language of the, the second commandment, um, which they've just broken with the golden calf. And in the second commandment, it talks of thousands of generations. I think this is just shorthand for that. It says there, I maintain love to thousands of generations of those who obey me, but I punish to third and fourth generation the wicked. Now, you and I find it hard to maintain love for one generation. Parents, they get difficult. Spouses, children, friends. We find it hard to love for a whole generation, 30 odd years. Really hard. But God, he loves down thousands of generations. You can read uh, around a thousand generations as you read from the start of the Bible through. You see his truthfulness to this word, the wonder of his love for the generations. I am a God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Here's a question. If God was going to reject you, what sin would it be that he would reject you for? If you were God and you were going to reject you, what sin would it be? Now, for some of us, there are things that we've done that the truth is we look around church and think, I bet there is nobody here who has come close to even thinking of doing something like that. And we feel deep shame and guilt. Others of us, they're, they're, there's nothing quite like that, but there is just that again and again and again. And we just think that there have been too many times when I've tearfully said, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. I never, ever again, please just forgive me. And we fear that actually it's not the nature of what I've done that means God will reject me. It's the, the sheer number of times I've done it. But the great thing here is that when God speaks about forgiveness in this verse, he uses all three of the Old Testament words to talk about sin. Do you see? He talks about forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's a tribe that appears, um, translated slightly differently in Psalm 51 and in an awful lot of other serious sin passages. The point is, look, every sort of sin is forgiven by this God. You cannot have committed the sort of sin that this God won't forgive. 
I mean, look through the Bible and you, and you realize he's not joking. David committed murder and adultery. Jacob was a liar and a thief. Samson continued to give in to the same sexual temptation all through his life. And it got him killed at the end. The Israelites grumbled and doubted and distrusted with remarkable consistency. Paul read and studied the Old Testament in more detail than you or I could dream of doing so, and yet was so hardened and blind to Jesus that he had people like you, followers of Jesus, dragged out their homes and stoned to death for worshipping God. God's forgiveness was enough for all of them and a thousand others beside. It must be enough for you and me. And yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. He is not a God who turns a blind eye to evil. Syrian families will get the justice they are crying out for now. Islamic State might seem to be a law unto themselves, but their day is coming and every one of them will stand before the judgment seat of God and they will face justice that will make them pray for a drone strike as an alternative. They will not get away with it. And neither will the greedy, corrupt, materialistic wicked of our city. God will bring justice. That's a huge comfort for those who face injustice, in particular for those for whom there is no prospect of things being righted in this life, for those who know that they will never see their wrongs righted. How liberating for those who've been terribly hurt. You do not need to be consumed by bitterness. You don't need to be consumed by that feeling, if I do not hold on to this, well, there is no justice. It's gone. The secret abuse will be one day brought before God's tribunal and judged in full. There is one who sees everything and he will judge in full. The patient, forgiving, loving God hates the destructiveness and misery of sin and so he will ensure it is dealt with. These things are not in opposition. They're part of his goodness. And this, this is our God. This is who Exodus has shown him to be. This is why God did all those things so that we might know he is like this. So that we might know the full, glorious splendor of his character. So that you and I might know what we're saying. When we say, I know God, this is what should be in our minds. And if we get this, then like Moses, we will fall down, verse 8, and worship. This also means, uh, thirdly, that the covenant stands There's a lot that could be said about verses 8 to 28. We're not going to go into them. But the point is, it is because God is a God like this, verses 6 to 7, that there can still be a covenant, a relationship, a guaranteed relationship between people like us and a God like him. And it's the same 
for us today under the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Our hope, our assurance that God will keep us and God will not throw us out eventually is not that you and I, uh, by the Holy Spirit, will live better lives than the Israelites could have. It is not that you and I are, are just morally better. Our hope is the same as their hope, that God's character is consistent and he has made good and faithful promises to forgive and preserve and love. Now there is a lot about life that you and I do not understand. Uh, There's probably a lot that confuses us even now today. But what we can know is the character of our God. The Bible doesn't tell us. We were thinking a few weeks ago in Engage after the evening service about how God is absolutely sovereignly in charge of everything and we are genuinely responsible people. The Bible doesn't tell us how we integrate those things. It confuses us. We struggle with it. But the Bible tells us about the character of God so we can trust him with our questions. The Bible doesn't tell you what the meaning of the particular issues you're facing right now are, the struggles, the pain, the trials. But it does tell you about the character of God. As the old saying goes, I do not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And when we don't know or understand why God is doing something, we go back to his character because always, always God acts in accordance with his character. And tonight we've seen that his character is loving, forgiving, compassionate, gracious, and just. Exodus reveals that he is a God whose name is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet not leaving the guilty unpunished. And if that name is a bit too much of a mouthful for us, the Bible gives us another name to trust, to call on, to love, And that is the name of Jesus. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Moses and the Israelites learned about lots of various aspects of God's character and the incidents of the Exodus, uh, his power to destroy Pharaoh, his compassion uh, that 